scriptures and turn to Genesis chapter 30. We're going to be looking at the second half of that chapter. It's on page 29 of the Pew Bible. Do you remember the Peter Pan peanut butter commercial years ago? Picky people pick Peter Pan peanut butter. It's a peanut butter that picky people pick. These tongue twisters give us a, a window into how, how we struggle. Some people struggle with tongue twisters in different ways. Some, some struggle with the S and SH combination. I use with my children at the dinner table. Uh, she sells seashells down by the seashore. If they put a bite of food in their mouth that is too big, I say, you have to say that. And so it proves that it's too big. Sometimes we struggle with the LR combination. How can a clam cram into a clean cream can? So notice how slowly I said that. And then there's the virtually impossible WR combination. Okay. Rise watched Ross switch his Irish wristwatch for a Swiss rich, Swiss wristwatch. Can't do it. And then there's the sermon title today, Pondering a Proper Posterity Posture. We have, don't have nearly as much trouble saying it as we do having it. A biblical posture towards prosperity is critical for a believer in Jesus Christ. So much so that Jesus spent an inordinate amount of time teaching and preaching on it, if you recall. 16 of his 38 parables were concerned with prosperity and possessions. In the Gospels, one out of every 10 verses deals directly with the subject of prosperity. In the Bible, the Bible offers 500 verses on prayers, 500 verses or so on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on prosperity and possessions. Why? Because it's so critical to have a proper posture towards prosperity. And today our text shows us not an exhaustive study of the subject, but it does show us two common, fairly common, sinful postures towards it and a biblical posture towards each. Look at, with me at verse 25 and verse 30. God's word says, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laman, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know that the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know that I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you should not give me anything. 
if you will do me do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all of your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come and look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charges of his sons. And he set them a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the whites of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set them, set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the, of, the, of the flocks in the flocks of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. It's been about 14 years or so since Jacob has arrived. Seven for Leah. Seven he labored for Rachel and he feels it's time to go home to Beersheba. And it seems that the birth of, Jake, of Joseph has spurred this on. The birth of Joseph from his beloved wife. Could be a couple reasons for this. Could be because he, he wanted to protect Rachel. A woman without children leaving her father would put her at risk. Could be because he, he in deference to Laban, not leaving without a, him knowing that she gave birth to a child. But more likely than not, it has to do with Jacob thinking that Joseph is the promised line, is the promised child. He is the one that that promise is going to go through that started with Abraham, then went to Isaac, then went to Jacob, and Jacob thinks Joseph is it. Rachel, my favorite wife, she finally has a child. Genesis 12:3. all nations will be blessed through him. It's time to go home. Time to go home to the land that God promised me, the people that God promised me. Time to go back. But Laban doesn't want him to go back, right? In verses 27 and 28, we read that Laban has grown rich having Jacob with him. He's been blessed because of Jacob. And he seems to have have learned this through divination. There's actually two readings going on there. You can look at this in verses 27 and 28. 
There's two readings that are possible there. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me, or it can be read, I've become rich and the Lord has blessed me because of you. You see a little note down at the bottom of your Bible. Now, it's very easy to say, well, by observation, that's the easier reading. I I see that I've become rich because of you. But the word there really means divination. So how do we reconcile that? Well, God is not blessing the use of divination here. Later on in Deuteronomy, he's going to, to outlaw divination. God does not change. We prayed about that right here. He doesn't accept it now, but reject it later. But what God does is he supersedes it for his own purpose. Laban has gone to look at omens, and God supersedes that. The same can be said as God interceding for Abraham and Jacob through the dream of a Philistine king. You remember that earlier? Same, we can speak about God speaking through the pagan prophet Balaam when he comes to curse and God supersedes him, causes him to bless. We can say the same for the star of Bethlehem who led Zoroastrian magi to the Christ child. Yahweh is not blessing the use of these things, but God is almighty, God is sovereign. And he can and does use flawed means for his ends. That's just a biblical principle. Just step back and consider Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we've been studying. They're train wrecks. But God uses them in spite of themselves. Just step back and consider Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery in Egypt. A little later on, towards the end of Genesis, Joseph will say it. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He can redeem the years the locusts have eaten. That is one of God's amazing qualities. Just step back and consider how God uses you and me. Flawed, sinful, and yet through us, amazingly, God brings his purposes to bear in this world. Is that amazing? So whether Laban simply put two and two together or God supersedes his divination, Laban knows that his great wealth is because of Jacob. And he wants Jacob to stay and asks him to name his price. And it is right here that Jacob brings into light Laban's posture towards prosperity. And that posture is Greed. Laban's posture towards prosperity is greed. In verses 29 and 30, Jacob basically tells Laban that he has nothing to show for 14 years of shepherding. I've been here for 14 years and I have nothing for it. As a matter of fact, the message translates verse 30 here as, isn't it about time that I do something for my own family? He has nothing. Laban has given him nothing, even though it's common for shepherds when they're tending the flock to be given 10 to 20% of the flock annually, including the wool and all the milk. Laban never paid him. As a matter of fact, we'll find out 
And if you can look over there in chapter 31, verse 7, that Jacob, is, when he's explaining to his wives why they have to get out of Dodge covertly, he, one of the things he brings up is, Laban has been cheating me and changing my wages all the time. Laban's posture towards prosperity is covetous greed. What I, what I term as close-handedness. Close-handedness. That's his posture towards prosperity. And you see this exemplified after Laban and Jacob strike the deal, right? The deal is struck. And what does Laban do? That very day, he goes and he takes out all the spotted and speckled, all the rarities that, that, that the deal was based on, and he puts them three days' journey away. And then he says, okay, Jacob, there's my flock. There's nothing for Jacob. Nothing. One of the things I find most uncomfortable about preaching God's word and applying God's word to our lives is that it first has to come to bear on my life first. It exposes my heart. And while doing research for for this sermon, I came across six characteristics of greed that, that frankly made me uncomfortable. And so what does a really loving pastor do? He shares it with you. <laughs> Greedy people are overly self-centered. Greedy people are always saying me with very little regard for the needs and feelings of others. Don't we see that in Laban? He didn't care about Jacob. He could care less about Jacob. Greedy people are envious. You see, envy and greed are, are twins. Greed wants what they won't have. Envy wants your stuff too. Laban hid the sheep that rightfully belonged to Jacob. He wanted his sheep too. Greedy people lack empathy. Their lack of genuine interest in the ideas and feelings of people makes them very difficult people to be around. I wonder if that's why Jacob said, it's time to get out of here. I just can't take Jacob uh, Laban anymore. Greedy people are never satisfied. See, greedy people look at life as a zero-sum gain. Instead of thinking that everyone would benefit as things grow, they see it as one pie and they want the biggest piece. You see, Laban's flock would have increased. He would have become even more prosperous, but he wants it all now. Greedy people focus on the short term. They're absorbed absorbed in satiating their immediate needs and do not consider the consequences A little later on, you'll see in the next chapter, Laban's very daughters complain that they feel used and cheated and treated like chattel by their father. Finally, greedy people know no limits. Greedy people are not good at maintaining boundaries. They look for loopholes and clever ways to outsmart the rules. And isn't that exactly what Laban is doing here? He's outsmarting, he's pushing the boundaries, he's looking for, he's creating loopholes, isn't he? 
Laban outsmarts the rules by taking the off-colored flock away. I think there are a couple insects that we want to ask God about when we get to heaven, don't we? Now, if you're camping in Acadia right now, those insects are black flies and mosquitoes. Why did you make them? For me, it's ticks. Why did God make ticks? Ticks are called the overeaters of the insect world. They have the disease of more. Once a tick latches on to its host, it literally cannot stop drinking. They engorge themselves and balloon up to seven to ten times their size. Then, because of their size, because of how they've engorged themselves, they literally just drop off. They don't un- unlatch. They, their weight causes them to drop off. But not before they are utterly transformed. If you've ever seen a tick that has been on a dog a long time, for me, there's not something that is grosser or, or more transmogrified. However much we don't want to think about this, there's a parallel here with greed. We all have a tendency to latch on to what this world has to offer, don't we? We have a tendency to latch on to those things. We engorge ourselves in power and prestige and prosperity. And we have a hard time knowing not only when to stop, but even how to stop. And slowly, over time, what greed does is it transforms us. I think Charles Dickens caught the essence of that in Ebenezer Scrooge, didn't he? That's what makes Ebenezer Scrooge such a universal character. He, he captured this essence of the transformation. If you've ever seen A Christmas Carol, you see that transformation through when they bring him back in time and he sees himself and he watches himself and he's, he's this young, good-looking person, and, but then he gets latched on to prosperity. And there's that poignant scene when, when his, when his fiance is standing at the door and, and she's basically making a plea for him to come with her and leave. And he doesn't and she places the engagement ring on the scales. Do you remember that? The money scales. And we see Scrooge turn into, transform into this bitter, angry, even physically hunched over, cold person. That is what greed does to you. It transforms your heart. That's the posture of greed. And what the gospel does when you encounter Christ is it slowly starts transforming you back. It slowly starts that transformation. It takes you from a close-handed person slowly to an open-handed person. It loosens your grip. Pastor and commentator Kent Hughes wrote, Generosity is the sign of a regenerate soul. He goes on and says, There's no such thing as a Christian Scrooge. 
We may know some Scrooges who claim to be Christians, but I don't think you can claim to really know Christ and be a stingy person. He concludes by saying the gospel opens your soul and thus opens your hand. Consider what the Bible tells us about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8 9. It says this, Though Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You see, when you begin to ponder that, that he gave up everything, so that we who had nothing can have everything. It starts changing your heart. When you begin to realize that he gave up his perfect reputation to be mocked and tacked naked on a cross so that we could have the perfect reputation before God, it begins to soften your heart. When you begin to grasp that because he became hated and despised, so that we could be loved by God, your heart is captured. When you begin to comprehend that he was judged so that we could become forgiven, your heart should begin to melt. When it dawns on you that he gave up his very life so that you and I can have life eternal, your heart begins to change. You begin to see prosperity for what it really is, a means to an ends, not an ends in itself. You begin to see this life as a short run. Not all there is. The book of James calls it a vapor. This life is a vapor. You begin to have that perspective. When you consider the work of Christ on your behalf, you really start transforming. And your hand starts to open. You begin to have the proper posture towards prosperity. That is generosity. Now, Jacob's posture towards prosperity is different, but no less sinful. His is self-reliance. Laban's problem was greed. Jacob, we see here, is totally self-reliant. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that Laban has cheated Jacob. So as the saying goes, fight fire with fire. That is how Jacob approaches this. I'm going to fight fire with fire. Since Laban has removed all the flock that are rightfully his, Jacob comes up with a twofold plan for his prosperity. First, he relies on a commonly held superstition to grow his wealth. Jacob takes small trunks of trees and he strips them so that they're striped and he lays them down at the watering troughs. He lays them down in front of where the, the sheep and the goats breed. You see, there's a superstition back then that whatever the environment was where the animals were breeding would influence the outcome of the children, the outcome of the flock. So Jacob embraces this superstition and he strips these trees and he places them in front of the watering trough, in front of the eyes of the sheep and goats. So when they mate, their lambs and, and 
kids will become speckled, spotted, and off-colored. Thus his. Now, the superstitions are not unique to the animal kingdom. We have them too, don't we? Ancient physicians thought birthmarks were, were the effect of, of the state of mind of the mother at the time. The Greek physician Galen believed you could influence a child, and this was one that's still held today. You could influence a child's characteristics by certain things you did when they were in utero. For example, if you wanted a, a beautiful child, you would gaze at the picture of a beautiful person. Anybody here listen to classical music while they were pregnant, thinking, my child will be more intelligent because of this? It's not so far gone. And here Jacob is relying on similar superstitions. But secondly, Jacob relies on his own ingenuity. So he's relying on superstition, and he's relying on his own ingenuity. He uses selective breeding to make his flock stronger, keeping the stronger goats and sheep and giving Laban the weaker. So what we're given here is a pretty clear picture of Jacob's self-reliance. He didn't go to Yahweh in prayer. He didn't trust God. He was engineering this. I'm going to engineer my prosperity. And verse 43 tells us it worked. He became very, very rich, wealthy, prosperous. Sitting in a crowd like this, there must be some people that have very comfortable bank accounts. That have maybe 401ks and investments that are in the six and seven figures. And I want to be clear. There is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. The Bible is neutral on how much or how little you have. Just like it is with alcohol. It's neutral on alcohol. It's not neutral on excess, but it's neutral on alcohol. You could have $50 in your bank or $55 million. What Scripture does care about, what Christ does care about, is the heart towards it. What's your heart towards that $50? What's the, your heart towards that $55 million? Jacob's heart is a self-reliant one. You can see this in his reaction in verse 37. Come hook or crook, he's going to make his prosperity happen. Through his business acumen and superstitious belief, he says in his heart, I'll do this. I'll make it happen. Jacob is totally self-reliant. And that's where his heart and our heart intersect. Our hearts are naturally like Jacob's heart, pretty self-reliant. If we've had any modicum of success, or perhaps even a good year, we tend to think, that's my business acumen. That's my ingenuity. That's my hard work ethic. That's my fishing knowledge. I know the bottom. That's my investment strategies. That's my personal skill. Or you go back to that was my wisdom in picking the right school to go to, getting the right degree. We even say superstitious things like, you know, 
I was just at the right place at the right time. And what we learn from Jacob is the prosperity that he has is all because of God. It's all because of God. Jacob learns about this in a dream that God gave him. Look with me at verse uh, chapter 31, verse 4. There we have a dream that Jacob, God has spoken to Jacob, and he's relating this to his wives, Leah and Rachel. And it says, So God sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock from your father and given it to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in the dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God came to me in a dream, Jacob! And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. See, Jacob was shown by God that it is not his superstitious beliefs or his ingenuity that prospered him. It was God all along in the background. It was God all along in the background. But realizing that it was God and not him, and there is the essence of the gospel right there. The heart of the gospel. See, the thing that's most difficult about accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you can't do it. One of the most, the hardest thing is that it requires total dependence, not self-reliance, total dependence. The very opposite of what we see in Jacob, the very opposite of what our own hearts beat after. The gospel demands that you come to a place of total and abject helplessness. And that is simply too much of a give for most people. Biblical Christianity, a person has to come to a place where they say, I can't do it. They have to come to a place where they say, I can't forgive myself. Where am I going to go? I can't be good enough. I can't be moral enough. I can't give enough philanthropically. The gospel demands that you come to a place in your life where you say, help. I can't do it. All the things that I think I can do and rely on myself, I've hit a wall. And our inborn nature pushes against that. In order to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to come to ground zero and say, I can't save myself. However much I want to, however much I think I can, I can't save myself. And if and when you come to that place, 
that's exactly where Christ meets you. When you get to that ground zero, that's where you meet Jesus Christ in his sufficiency. Because he says, you can't forgive yourself, but I can forgive you. You can't be moral enough, he says, but I was. I lived the perfect life. You can't pay for your sins, he says. But I did on the cross. I died for you. You can't give enough. But I did. I gave my life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. You preserved for us and for challenging us today through it. In Jesus' name, amen.